A happy June 28th to you. A good Monday morning to you. This episode of Real Talk is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well. Bitcoin Well proudly headquartered out of Edmonton, Alberta with Bitcoin ATMs. More and more of them across the country. If you're trying to make sense of what's going on in crypto right now, what would appear to be a bit of a nosedive, some are suggesting it's probably a pretty great opportunity. Others are saying, I don't know. These are the exact types of questions and conversations the team at Bitcoin Well loves to hit head on. You can find them under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We hope that you had an absolutely fantastic weekend, and and thanks for joining us today, whether you're uh, catching us live on this Monday morning or whether you're listening to the podcast later in the day. We trust that you are, uh, it doesn't really matter where you are, finding a way to to take a bit of a break from what uh, looks to be in many, if not most jurisdictions across North America, record-setting heat. Uh, This officially, I think, feels like, this officially feels like the kickoff to summer you know i know that back you know about a week ago as a matter of fact a week ago today we were talking about summer solstice but this this uh when people are literally bringing their kids outside to say hey you know you're you're gonna hear all this talk from adults and teachers about frying eggs on sidewalks let's see if it actually works let's see if you can crack an egg and and get it sunny side up on the sidewalk these are the types of experiments that are happening right now people finding ways to cool down and of course challenges uh, for a lot of folks as well, health and otherwise. Um, and so it's just been a, a, a really amazing few days on that front. As people try to find solace. We talk about these temperature swings, and these are the days that we try to remember uh, when in some parts of the world we find ourselves in frigid cold six months from now. We'll look back on this and realize, you know, we, we, we don't want to complain too much. We found our way on a bit of a road trip over the weekend, had a wonderful time uh, in one of our favorite parts in western uh, parts of Western Canada, beautiful Sylvan Lake, beautiful central Alberta area. And of course, uh, able to find a, a nice, quiet little pocket of the beach. I will never say where we found it, but a nice, quiet pocket of the beach. Would love to know how you spent your weekends. Of course, we have positive reflections coming up a little bit later on in this show presented by our friends at Kubi Energy. Uh, some great submissions from you that have been in touch to us at talk at ryanjesperson.com. That's where you can get us anytime. I want to let you know coming up in about uh, we'll say 20 minutes from now ish. We're going to take a look at our most recent question of the week. Uh, the question week presented by our friends at Y Station, our official research and strategy partners asked how you're feeling about Canada Day coming up on Thursday, July 1st, of course. Is it a little bit different for you or is it dramatically different for you? Is it not different for you at all this year uh, with the revelations, uh, the discovery of of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of unmarked graves outside residential schools, former residential schools in Canada? We're going to get into the results. You may be surprised or you may not be whatsoever but let me just say now 20 minutes ahead of time 20 minutes before we get into this there is not there's not even close to consensus from real talkers which is really interesting we'll get into some of the numbers but there is not just you don't all just feel one way about july 1st about canada day this year 
or in years to come. Interesting stuff there. In about 45 minutes from now, we're going to talk to Brock McGillis, a former pro hockey player. Brock, uh, the first to come out as gay. We're going to talk about uh, the culture of pro sports. I mean, this is a really interesting story as well, uh, an ongoing, obviously, conversation. But Carl Nassib uh, from the uh, Las Vegas Raiders, Carl Nassib came out we're releasing a video just, uh, what was it? I, I think about a week ago, it was June 21st, that video came out on his Instagram, uh, coming out officially saying, he said, hey, listen, I, <laughs> and you'll see, we'll play the video for you. But right at the beginning, he, he just kind of drops it real quick. He goes, yeah, hey, guys, just wanted to post a video. Come on here and say that I'm gay. And then, and then he kind of gets into it. It was just not a big deal. He basically goes on to say, I hope that these videos down the road aren't a big deal, that people don't really feel like they have to do them. But right now, he says, I'll kind of take that on my shoulders a little bit, and I'll be one of these that shows some leadership here. Paul Quinney will also join us alongside Brock McGillis, uh, a reporter with the Hockey Writers at thehockeywriters.com. And we'll talk about culture and sports. Of course, this, as, as Pride Month, comes to an end. It doesn't mean that uh, conversations come to an end around things like representation uh, in society, including in sport. And then about an hour and a half from now, uh, Dr. Eva Jewell will join us from the Yellowhead Institute. Very much looking forward to this conversation as part of our, our ongoing investigation into Canada's response and Canadians' response to the calls to action on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report five years ago. And uh, Dr. Jewell's been doing some good work as part of the team there at the Yellowhead Institute um, out of what I think she's probably going to say uh, is X University. I'm not sure exactly how she'll pronounce it or present it. We're going to find out. It'll be interesting. Um, I don't know if it's irony or not, uh, but it's an interesting fact that the Yellowhead Institute operates out of Ryerson University, uh, which is, of course, experiencing its own, if I can say, uh, is it is it dramatic or disrespectful to call it an, an identity crisis? I don't think so, but they're having pretty important conversations and pretty meaningful conversations. And I would imagine impactful ones uh, around uh, the, the history of that university, its namesake in particular, the connection to Canada's history with residential schools. And it'll be interesting to see what Canada, one of Canada's more prominent universities, uh, Ryerson University or X University, as some students, faculty and staff are calling it, what that future looks like. We kick off today with a follow up of sorts. You may remember a, a while ago, it was, it was May 10th that I had a, a fascinating conversation. We were grateful uh, to welcome to the program uh, Dr. Mikhail Rasik, who was featured in Edify Edmonton. It's a magazine, Edify Edmonton. He was featured for his work on genetic counseling. And we were talking about resources that people have or that people will have in future resources that that researchers are working on that would allow, for example, parents. And you can see right here at edifyedmonton.com, the piece that I'm talking about resources that that individuals may have with regards to insights into their own health future, not their not their own health present, Not like uh, we're going to tell you what that lump is or we're going to tell you why you're limping or we're going to tell you why you have indigestion, but health futures, especially of interest, I think, to parents. Here's what your child's health future might look like with regards to challenges around multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's decades down the line, certain cancers. What about other neurological disorders? And then, of course, up 
flared some other interesting insights from Real Talk audience members. You remember this back in May when they had the conversation. A big one, for example, one example was insurance companies who would have access to this data. How would it impact people's coverage? Could this create barriers to health insurance or protection for citizens? Is this technology all it's cracked up to be and what do we need to be aware of? Well, a Real Talk listener by the name of jenna she said he didn't she didn't want her last name used which is perfectly fine she she sent us an email again to talk at ryanjespison.com literally the day of that interview uh she she sent it uh, about 12 hours after the interview a big long one where she just sort of poured out she said hey listen i was so excited to see genetic testing make it as a topic on real talk she said it's it's fascinating and it's so important that we understand genetics and the evolution of genetics as more and more people are able to use this knowledge to guide their medical decisions. Now, Jenna said, while I'm not a genetic counselor, I do hope to someday become one. She says, but if you're going to bring guests on with private interests like you did in genetic testing, then you must bring on a genetic counselor as well. Jenna said, I'm talking about health professionals with specialized training in genetics and counseling, skilled at communicating complex information about the medical, psychological, and familial implications of the genetic contributions to disease. She said it's so important to have a fair and balanced understanding of this issue. Jenna told us that she recently completed a course in genetic counseling at the University of Alberta, said that she's very interested in the future of this and and then really started to get into it. So so we said, obviously, this is I mean, first of all, it caught our attention. We loved how engaged Jenna was, but also how many valuable points she brought up. And we're all about follow up. We're all about continuing conversations. You know that if you're a regular subscriber to this podcast or if you join us every morning on our live show, Alessandra Cumming uh, has agreed to join us this morning. Very excited for this conversation. Alessandra with the Canadian Association of Genetic Counselors. Welcome to Real Talk and a good Monday to you. Good morning, Ryan. It's great to be here. And this is a great way to start the Monday morning. Yeah, well, you I mean, you are in a fascinating line of work, a fascinating area of study. Can can you give us a bit of a scene setter? I mean, how you got into this and maybe how much more significant of a conversation this has been with with recent technological advancements and research? I think Jenna did half of my job for me this morning. Yeah. And I provided you with uh, really the starting background of what genetic counselors do. Uh, and most simply, genetic counselors are healthcare professionals who really help individuals and their family members understand how genetics contributes to disease. Uh, I personally, so I'm a genetic counselor at Health Sciences North in Sudbury, Ontario, uh, and there I'm a clinical genetic counselor. So I work as a certified genetic counselor, and I'm current CAGC president of the Canadian Association of Genetic Counselors. When we're most most simply genetic counselors help individuals to understand what, from a medical uh, perspective, a genetic mutation or a change in a gene might mean for them and for their family members. Um, and so what genetic counselors do really involves both an informational or an educational piece. It always involves talking about what a genetic condition is from a medical perspective, how it might affect someone over the course of their lifetime, um, differences in age of onset, uh, how long, um, you know, the spectrum of severity of a condition. 
But it also, and most equally, uh, equally importantly, it's really about communicating information that's important for them in terms of the psychological implications um, and the medical implications. So it's kind of that marriage of information and it, information and also psychology. Yeah, no kidding, which, which makes it fascinating. And I would also imagine somewhat challenging. I, I mean, you, you're providing insights and and, and attempting to fil- facilitate understanding on a number of different fronts. It's cool how your career has taken you across the country, right? I mean, you've you completed uh, your certification, your grad degree uh, in genetic counseling at University of British Columbia. You're working, as mentioned now, in Sudbury, Ontario, and serving as as president of the Canadian Association of Genetic Counselors. How long have genetic counselors been around? I mean, how long has this profession been around? I imagine it becomes more important as genetic, cal- or, or as rather as genetic testing and the availability of it becomes more prevalent. Is this relatively recent, last couple of decades type thing, last few years? So the first genetic counseling program started in about 1970. And mm. since then, so the first genetic counseling program was in uh, New York, and there are now 55 accredited Masters of Science in Genetic Counseling programs throughout the United States and Canada. Uh, there are five genetic counseling programs in Canada. Uh, and most genetic counselors complete a Master's of Science in Genetic Counseling, uh, typically following their undergraduate degree. Uh, and most genetic counselors have certification through either the Canadian Association of Genetic Counselors and now the Canadian Board of Genetic Counseling or through the American Board of Genetic Counseling. So, um, so we Allison, go ahead there. I don't mean to step on your toes. My apologies. How, how, how much more... I mean, I suspect this may I don't intend the question to be rhetorical, but like in layperson's terms to how we can understand it, not you, the professional, how, how dramatically different is genetic testing and what it can reveal now? I mean, you talk about the 1970s. We're talking 50 years ago. I mean, how, how would, what terms would you use to characterize the difference from what we were able to determine in the 70s versus now? Right, and there's been an absolute explosion and evolution in terms of the ways that we're able to analyze the genetic material, the the learning that has gone on in terms of how much we know and how in how much depth we're able to analyze genetic material has just increased exponentially. And so today, uh, the availability of genetic tests is increasing exponentially. We are more and more able to analyze the genetic material at uh, a greater, at much greater uh, ability. We're able to really drill down and see at the individual level, we're able to analyze. We're moving towards whole genome sequencing is actually something that more and more is becoming clinically available and is being investigated um, where we're actually able to analyze the vast majority of an individual's genetic material. Uh, we also are able to, with a great degree of precision, um, analyze a single gene or a panel, a number of genes where we might be assessing, could there be a specific genetic change that could cause heredit- a hereditary cancer syndrome um, or a specific neurological condition? Can we find a diagnosis at the genetic level that may inform the health care of that individual as well as their family members. That's really the question that genetic counselors try to ask. This is uh, maybe maybe an unrelated uh, metaphor or, or maybe it fits perfectly. But I, I heard somebody talking a while back about how when, when they finally saw that robots were designing and building robots, 
that's when they felt like we had gone too far. That was that person's line in the sand that they drew. And they said, I felt like tech and AI was positive right up until the point where I didn't see any human involved in the process. Now, I know people would push back on the technicalities of that and we could have a big fulsome conversation. But in your mind, is is genetic testing and where it's at now, the capabilities that it that it carries, et cetera, is it all good or is there some context or are there some points where you say, even as a genetic counselor, I'm not so sure about this. I wonder if we're going too far here. Well, why don't I use this as an opportunity to really, in our conversation so far, I haven't really shown you kind of the potential of where we are right now in terms of what technologies are enabling us to do from the perspective of providing patients with care. And just to get concrete, what genetic counselors do um, in their typical or most typical work setting would be within a medical genetics clinic uh, where we see patients who've been referred by their doctors where either there's a suspicion that that individual has a genetic condition or there might be a specific genetic condition that could affect their medical care in their family. Uh, and we see that individual in order to inform their care. Um, a, a specific example about how even at the even at the most um, advanced level of technology today, you may have heard of, for instance, CRISPR-Cas9 and its abilities to uh, kind of uh, its potential to increase our abilities to treat uh, genetic disease. There are currently examples of genetic disease where we're able to, you know, we're starting to be able to implement findings of um, from these genetic technologies, we're starting to be able to implement those changes at a real true level um, where we're able to actually imp impact patients' care and, uh, and really help them um, improve their life, improve their life care. Um, and that's really important. Uh, you know, we're not at the level, it's really important when we're introducing any new technology or therapy, it's important to think through all of the ethical considerations. That's absolutely vital. And there are always um, so many aspects to think about um, and to address. So you raise the idea of, you know, can you go too far? Even the people who have uh, investigated these technologies have addressed that it's really important that we think through, is this, um, is this technology, are there possible ways that it could be used outside of clinical care? And so really where genetic counselors focus uh, is on those specific genetic conditions um, where it may impact someone's medical care and uh, create a life limiting or, uh, or life reducing disorder. And we wanna find ways to help them and their family members. I have so many questions. I feel like if, if Oh man, this could, this interview could go for six hours because you know you want you want to ask you want to ask. I mean, for some people, I mean, it, you know, it's like this. It's the classic question when you ask somebody if you could know the day of your death, would you want to know it? Would you want to know the day and the cause of your death ahead of time? It's it, it's that whole quandary, and I don't and I don't know that most people would choose to know or not. I wonder if there's some sort of a a blissful naivety around certain things and I, I where do you land on that i mean would, would i want to know that i'm going to have a, a debilitating condition so that i can get ahead of it or try to pursue 
some sort of a life impacting strategy ahead of time. Maybe uh, at, at the same time, uh, I mean, there's questions around access to information. Who should have access to the information? Who can request genetic testing? I mean, geez, life insurance, any form of health insurance, right? I mean, even jurisdictional public health coverage in Canada. I mean, people would have very serious questions about that. I mean, does your head swirl like this? Do you have all these questions that you wrestle with yourself? You identify so many of the things that genetic counselors focus on. When we meet with patients, what we're doing is to take them through some of the considerations that you raise. Things like if you decide to have genetic testing, would it impact your medical care? Would there be, for instance, one of the things that genetic counselors do is to arrange screening tests, uh, cancer surveillance or screening tests that may reduce their likely or catch and catch a cancer if a cancer develops early, or we may be able to provide them with, in some cases, not always, and that's always a part of the conversation, is might there be treatments that we could offer if a genetic diagnosis were to be confirmed? What genetic counselors do is really take, take patients through that entire spectrum of considerations. Um, and you raise, for instance, concerns around, uh, around whether there's legislation protecting individuals from insurance and employment discrimination, whether a genetic test result might impact um, an, an individual's ability either to be insured um, or, or to affect, um, for instance, that of their family members. Uh, and there is a Genetic Non-Discrimination Act in place in Canada. It, uh, it was it was introduced in May of 2017 um, and passed as a federal criminal law and uh, it was upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2020. Prior to that time, prior to that legislation being introduced, genetic non-discrimination, genetic discrimination, and what I mean by that is really that fear that someone might have about having a genetic test was a real thing that we saw for our patients. Our patients came in and declined having, for instance, genetic tests where there might be some of those um, kind of interventions if they were to have a genetic mutation or change. We would be able to help their health care, but they made decisions not to have uh, genetic testing on the basis that uh, they were too afraid that they may have an impact on their uh, insurance and employment. So that's really something that has affected and in a positive way enabled us to have conversations with our patients where we say there is this legislation in place and although no, no law is ever perfect, it does improve our ability to provide care to patients um, and to allow them to make the right decisions for themselves in terms of testing. Yeah, we're, we're getting fascinating feedback, uh, even with our live tuning audience today. Uh, Tracy says this is a very timely conversation for me. She says this week I'm submitting my samples to be tested for the breast and ovarian cancer genes regarding results. I'm more worried for my daughter than I am for me. Uh, Matthew's watching right now, says I'm starting my master's in genetic counseling in September at McGill. He says, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Linda Ray says genetic testing for hereditary breast cancers has been life saving for the women in my family. There are options to save our lives. Full stop that from Linda Ray. What about this from S. McFury, who says when my uncle was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, they, they knew it was genetic. Uh, two out of his four brothers decided to do a test. The others asked that they not disclose the results, and his kids have decided not to find out. This is not an easy decision, to say the least. It's not an easy decision, and those are some of the things that 
come up at, that come up every day in our clinic. So a typical genetics clinic might see some of those exact conditions. And again, I would say that your audience is bringing up those exact, uh, those exact questions that genetic counselors are in a key place to answer. Um, throughout this conversation, I've really addressed the typical types of, um, of patients and referrals that we might see in a genetics clinic. Um, and those exact examples that you highlight, especially with respect to, for instance, hereditary cancer and other conditions that might affect, um, that might affect families or refer to genetics. Can I I want to refer back to Jenna's email. This was this was this was the pitch that uh, that prompted us to reach out to you, Alessandra. And I'm so grateful that we have engaged audience members like this. And Jenna specifically writes about Canada's genetic non-discrimination non-discrimination law, which you just referenced. Um, and, and she says, you know, she says it, it doesn't specifically prohibit genetic discrimination. The way the act is written leaves open the possibility that genetic information may legitimately be used for discriminatory purposes if it happened to be sent to an insurance company as part of somebody's medical records or if it was disclosed voluntarily or if it was obtained through means other than a genetic test like family history or a blood test. She says, thankfully, there was also an amendment made to the Canadian Human Rights Act that does explicitly prohibit discrimination. She says, however, and this will resonate with a lot of people, other prohibited grounds of discrimination in this act have long been given exceptions for insurance contracts she says for example i'm sure that every young male driver with a car is well aware of this she says canada needs stronger legislation around genetic discrimination do you agree or disagree we are very we as the cagc are very happy with the progress that was made with the genetic non-discrimination act uh canada Canada was slower than other um, countries where genetic testing was as advanced as it was uh, in Canada. Canada had the availability of genetic testing, but did not have the legislation in place. And so the introduction of the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act was a huge step forward. Uh, In my counseling with my patients, part of what I always say is that no law is ever perfect and no law can absolutely guarantee. We can't uh, predict exactly how that law is playing out uh, in practice, but at the, but at the level of entering a, entering a contract or agreement, um, there are very explicit within the genetic non-discrimination act. There are very explicit, uh, provisions for where that genetic information would not be able to be used. And we do feel that it protects many of our patients um, from exactly what we would be fearful that uh, that they would kind of be subject to without that legislation in place. Jenna went on to specific. Yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, I I was going to say Jenna went on to talk about genetic testing of minors. Um, You know, she says genome sequencing uh, she says, by the way, sequencing a, a newborn's genome is very different than the newborn screening that's done today. Uh, if you disagree with any of this, please feel free to jump in or, or, or I'll, I'll let you take over in a sec. But she says genome sequencing of all newborns would almost certainly come with potential psychosocial harms to the newborns as well as infringe on their rights. For example, the testing could reveal information the child may not have wanted to know if they were to make their own decision about testing later in life. 
such as the presence of an of an adult onset condition like Huntington's disease or or perhaps cystic fibrosis. It could also reveal something called a variant of uncertain significance, which is a variation in the gene that that medical professionals aren't sure is disease causing or benign. In fact, it would almost certainly reveal variants of uncertain significance. Lots of them, she says, because we all have lots of them. And she says the most important thing when considering genetic testing for pre-symptomatic um, and all genetic testing for that matter, she says, is that once you have this information, you cannot unlearn it. Um, does the Canadian Association of Genetic Counselors have a position on sequencing or genetic testing of minors? So again, Jenna's doing part of my job for me today. Because and part of mine, quite frankly. Again. Yeah. <laughs> Again, many, many of the considerations that are important when we consider whether genetic testing is appropriate uh, for children or not. Uh, to make things clear at this point, we're not at a stage, for instance, where we would be uh, certainly with respect to healthy individuals. We're not at a stage where we would be uh, sequencing the entire genome uh, of a child. Newborn screening is something where the purpose of newborn screening is to identify those children who may be at risk of a clinically significant and severe condition uh, where there may be treatment available at a very early age. And so those are things like metabolic conditions uh, that can present quite clearly uh, when children are quite young. The difference or the, the decision point with respect to whether any genetic testing is appropriate for children really comes down to would it impact imminently their medical care? Would it have an effect on their medical care or their quality of life during childhood or adolescence? If it does not, then testing of healthy children or adolescents typically is not something that, for instance, in a medical genetics clinic uh, or in one of the other settings where genetic counselors might be meeting with patients, we typically would not be arranging uh, genetic testing for children in those circumstances. And the reason really is, and again, Jenna, highlights this point, that it's the potential of violating autonomy, um, the autonomy of that child to make that decision once uh, they're themselves an adult. So they can really decide for themselves, is this something that I want to proceed with once, they, once they're an adult? Um, but during childhood and adolescence, it's really the question of, will this impact their medical care? Are there, for instance, there aren't always treatments when we do genetic testing, but if there are treatments, could knowing the genetic diagnosis allow us to improve their quality of life and reduce uh, the morbidity of, of a disease that they're experiencing? Um, we also ask, there are even circumstances, and one, one example I'll give you is that there are certain uh, conditions where it may be warranted, even in an individual who's healthy, if we know there's a family history of a condition, um, where we know there's a specific genetic change, um, not one of those variants of uncertain significance that we don't have enough science about yet. And Jenna correctly raises that that's a really important point and one of the areas where genetic counselors are specifically trained to take patients through all of the things that uh, need to be considered uh, when we, the fact that we might find uncertain findings when we do genetic testing. Uh, but in some families, there's a very specific genetic change that we know causes, for instance, a hereditary cancer syndrome that can cause cancer as early as, for instance, during childhood or adolescence. And it might not be so much a specific medication or a specific treatment, but it might be that we can offer cancer screening to reduce the risk 
um, that if a cancer was present, we wouldn't catch it until later. And in those circumstances, testing of children often is something that following a detailed conversation, always following detailed conversation about the pros and the cons, um, what testing would be able to tell us or not. Um, in some cases, we do arrange genetic testing. Um, and that's really, we haven't gotten concrete about what genetic testing is, um, but it would be really be looking for that specific genetic change that causes the genetic condition. Yeah, let me let me ask you this in closing for now anyway. I feel like this is a conversation we, we should check in with you every six months or every year and just kind of get updated on where the testing's going and maybe some of the case studies or the anecdotes that we see around us. We could us, talk for hours. For we sure, could. Right? I mean, obviously, and I'm, I'm just keeping an eye on our live chat. I mean, someone will bring up an example and you go, boy, there's something we could go off on for 20 minutes. But, you know, so many people's conversations and health decisions will begin in consultation with their family doctor, right? Or with a, with a medical professional, whether it's a clinic or, or, or otherwise. And if there's availability of testing like this in, in a private context, where there could be a referral, an individual could pursue it based on the advice or in consultation with their family doctor. Do you have the confidence or do you have confidence that that Canadian frontline physicians, let me say family doctors, are well equipped enough or up to speed enough on this to be able to prepare their patients mentally, physically and otherwise for what they're getting into? So let me make a couple of quick points there where for the most part, the genetic counseling, the genetic testing we've been talking about is very much within Canada, primarily in the public realm within the public healthcare system. Um, there are private paid genetic tests that exist, um, but medical genetics clinics within Canada very much offer operate on a referral based uh, system where a physician would submit a referral to a genetics clinic based on that suspicion about a uh, about a genetic condition. So many of the, for instance, genetic tests that can impact people's medical care are covered by provincial health coverage. Um, with respect to the question about where this is with on the front line in terms of primary care, nurse practitioners, um, even specialists who maybe haven't had uh, a lab extensive training uh, in medical genetics. Uh, one part of the answer to whether genetic testing is at the front line and whether doctors are needing to uh, recognize and know how to manage genetic test results is that I think that day is already here. Uh, I think that your average family physician uh, or uh, primary care provider does need to have some baseline information about genetic testing um, because it is going to come across their desk. Uh, and certainly there are resources or genetics clinic. There's a list of genetics clinics available through the Canadian Association of Genetic Counselors um, website. And one other source that I typically tell uh, primary care providers about is Genetics Education Canada Knowledge Organization, um, which has excellent resources for frontline uh, physicians who uh, may, may not have training in genetics. And certainly I think over time, the incorporation of increased training for physicians uh, in the curriculum is inevitable. I think it's inevitable and important because it allows, as you say, Ryan, those starting conversations so that then they can come to genetics for, I think in the future, we're going to see a model where the, the patients who are seen in a genetics clinic or by genetic specialists, such as genetic counselors or medical and clinical geneticists or physicians trained to diagnose genetic conditions, 
we are going to be seeing the patients who have the most severe presentation or the most significant, the most complicated genetic test results, uh, where it's really vital that they receive that detailed counseling that genetic counselors um, have in order to take them through all the considerations. But doctors definitely need to know that this is absolutely going to uh, be coming across their desks and every specialist, medical genetics, because genetic disease can affect any part of the body at any stage of life, medical genetics really intersects with so many areas of medicine. Um, and it's been a privilege during my time, just in closing, it's been a privilege in my time in practice, kind of intersecting with all those areas of medicine. Um, and increasingly, as the genetic workforce increase, genetic counseling workforce increases, uh, genetic counselors are increasingly becoming embedded within other areas of medicine. Um, and we're, and as we're able to treat more genetic disease and have specific targeted therapies, for instance, in the space of hereditary cancer, um, where there are targeted therapies we're able to um, incorporate, it's going to be increasingly important, not only for the physicians to be familiar with genetic testing, um, but also to incorporate genetic counselors into their workflow over time. It's, it's a field. It's an area where I would imagine you feel that no matter how far it advances, you still feel like you're just getting started because really, I mean, the, the advancements, I, I suppose, are only limited by human imagination and, and ingenuity. And I would imagine that the more discovery that there is, the more inspiration there is for further discovery. And yeah, this stuff blows my mind. I'm really grateful that you were here to talk with us about it, Alessandra. I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Alessandra Cumming is, is president of the Canadian Association of Genetic Counselors, joining us uh, from her clinic, a clinical genetic counselor at Health Sciences North in Sudbury, Ontario. Have a great week. And thanks again for this. Can't wait for part two. Thanks yeah, so much. Looking forward to it. Thanks again, Alessandra, on our uh, live chat. Really interesting stuff. Tracy says, I've taken a long time. So Tracy earlier, she's following up here. She's this week submitting samples for testing on certain cancers. Says, I've waited many years. Uh, I've taken a long time, she says, to decide whether I want this information. My, my family history says I could be living on borrowed time. Tracy says, I'm 53 and knowing now is less stressful than not knowing. Meantime, Courtney says genetic testing allowed us to know the unknown for our daughter with a disability. Knowing the source of her developmental disability made decision making easier, which is, yeah, I mean, understandable. There's always I mean, there's always a connection to our audience. I love it. Whatever you're thinking here. I mean, James is wrestling with it, for example, says I have very mixed feelings about this. He says, I watched my, my gran and my father both live healthy lives and then die lingering deaths. What an interesting, James, I, I feel like I know exactly what you're talking about. Lingering deaths. James says, I'm not sure I want to know if or when that will happen, if I know the outcome. I don't know. Sarah Hoyle's the producer of this show. You booked Alessandra. Okay, so just a, a fastball on the first pitch. <laughs> oh, boy. Here we go. And this isn't necessarily the same thing, but it kind of sets the tone or here's some context. Like, would you want to know right now? Would you want to know the day of your death? <laughs> would you want to know the date? Oh, here. I thought you were going to ask me, well, do I want genetic testing? And I was like, yeah, would you want? But but I mean, like we can get into that. But I just like, here's the fastball. Would you want to know? No, no. You? I think about this all the time. I don't think about it all, all the, the time. <laughs> I don't think about it all the time, but I think about it often. Uh, I don't think I would want to know. 
Because what if it, I, I shouldn't even say this, like, but like, what if it's today? Mm. First of all, I wouldn't be here. No offense, anybody. <laughs> you'd be here. Come on. We all know you'd be here. Oh, you I'd love be, this thing. I would, I would drag, uh, you know what I would do? I would drag my wife and son out to the golf course for an emergency round. And then I would have somebody along with us running my phone, announcing that there was, there was on, 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 on the 18th green, uh, we're going to rent out the golf course. And I would just put it all on my credit cards because I'm going to be gone. So don't worry about it. Lines of credit. We'll max it all out. I'm sure there's some, I'm just kidding. Um, and try to get everybody together mm. and just sort of say, you know, and, and but like, what if you what if you knew the date, but not the cause? What if what if, what if the universe said it will be, you know, April 28th, 2051? And you're like, OK, is is, is that going to be from like, you know, prostate cancer or is that going to be from a motor vehicle accident? Well, or, that's or, or is that going to be like a homicide? Like I like, would you want to know that? If you if you didn't know the cause of death and you woke up on that day and you had a dinner reservation and you were still alive at 4 p.m., would you go for dinner? If you went for dinner, would you order the like rare seafood that they serve without cooking it? Would that maybe be the cause? Of, you know what I mean? I don't know. My mind goes in all these. OK, now I have a I'm going to further this up then. Do you want to live forever? No. Not at all. Yeah, me neither. No, <laughs> I want to go. I want to go. Uh, I want I want to make the most out of life. And then, and uh, and then before <laughs> before I start forgetting loved ones mm. because that's heartbreaking. Anybody that's been through it, anybody that's had a loved one with dementia or Alzheimer's knows how how heartbreaking that is. And just I, I always feel like on this show, one of the things that I think we ought to do uh, is just give shouts out and recognize people that have amazing and oftentimes thankless jobs. And I think of people that do amazing work in long term care and assisted living facilities. Boy, have we ever gained an appreciation and also seen some red flags, quite frankly, when it comes to some private operators. But someone's going to write in and say not all private operators, but people that are working with with people in in the autumn of their lives as my dad once beautifully put it mm. a shout out to them um we're going to be talking uh in, in a while uh we're going to be talking about a pride month and sports we're going to be taking a look at canada day through the eyes of real talkers by way of our y station question of the week i wanted to take a second right now to remind you that at campers-village.com right now they have i'm going to show you this i want to show you this their summer sale is on right now campers dashvillage.com up to 40% off their top outdoor gear. It kicked off on Friday. It runs all the way through till July 11th. You can see it on my screen right now at campers-village.com. There it is, campers-village.com. You can see the summer sale up to 40% off top outdoor gear, including fashionable lifestyle clothing from brands like Prana and Tentry and Fig, footwear, from, from the big backpacking boots all the way to trail runners and sandals. And then, and of course, things like expedition backpacks, ultralight tents, family tents, kayaks, canoes. Right now, the stuff that, that people are trying to get their hands on right here through these amazing couple of weeks. I mean, just the most pristine weather. What a great time to get outdoors. Campers Village has been the trusted source for Canadians for years and years. Two stores in Edmonton, one in Calgary and online 24-7 at campers-village.com. They'll ship across the country most orders over 49 bucks ship for free also a big shout out to our friends at Friesen brothers i wanted to show you this on their instagram just the other day they posted this photo this guy on the right i'm so proud to call him my friend 
an officer of the Order of Canada, an absolute legend, the founder of Friesen Brothers. That is Frank Loveson. Look at this guy still right there with the team. They're harvesting from their rooftop gardens. They've got bees up on the roof now at their new Edmonton store. Unbelievable what they're doing at Friesen Brothers. Check out the BC cherries right now at their 16 locations across the province. Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years has been Alberta grown and Alberta owned. We asked you last week to chime in on our question of the week at ryanjesperson.com. We present it every week in partnership with our official research and strategy partners at Y Station. And of course, with Canada Day approaching July 1st, that's this Thursday, we wanted to know if it's different for you this year. In light of the discoveries of children's bodies at multiple former residential school sites, 54% of you in a recent question of the week told us that you feel differently now about your relationship with Canada. And so this week we wanted to ask how you're going to reflect on, honor, or even celebrate our country. Here are some of the key points. I mean, this is some of the data. Uh, we appreciate the hundreds of you that chimed in on this. And if you subscribe to our Patreon, uh, you've already received the full top line report in your email. But look at these numbers. There is no consensus when it comes to real talkers. We asked, are you planning on celebrating Canada Day this year? Now, we know that the word was chosen intentionally. Are you planning on celebrating Canada Day this year? 42% say yes. 37% say no. And for 21% of you, there were comments. You chose other. You, you elaborated on that. We'll get into that in just a little bit. So 42% say, yes, you're celebrating this year. Let's take a look at another key piece of data. This from the team at Y Station. They worked so hard over the weekends. We appreciate them doing this. At least 32% of real talkers of the hundreds that chimed in, at least 32% say you feel awkward about celebrating Canada Day this year. 48%, let's call it half of you, said, uh-uh. Half of you said definitively, I do not feel awkward. And don't take that as we were trying to impose some sort of a feeling on you. But I was a little surprised by that, that, that one in two audience members that chimed in on our question of the week said, nah, we don't feel awkward about celebrating Canada Day this year. Now, I guess for different people, celebrations can mean different things, right? I mean, does celebrating mean that you're going you're gonna to have that flag up in your backyard and at some point maybe you'll rise and sing the national anthem together or you'll talk about your favorite road trip across the country? Or does it mean unabashed flag-waving fireworks hooting and hollering with the smoker going and the people in the yard? I mean, what does that mean? Here's another interesting tidbit from Y Station. 42% of you, 42% of real talkers who participated in our question of the week will not be celebrating Canada Day for a while, if ever again. It's one thing to talk about this year. Well, personalities on air on Hockey Night in Canada are wearing the orange ribbons. And while there are there's orange survey tape tied to the chain link fencing around schools right now. And while Canadian flags are flying at half staff in, in most municipalities and and on a lot of private businesses as well. That's the tone right now. But what about Canada Day in 2022 or 2025 or 2030? 42% of you said that there will be some impact longer term. 
Here's another interesting point. This was one that caught our attention. 14% of you said that you're going to reflect just for this year. While 23% of you, one in four, let's say, of real talkers said, we're celebrating regardless. 23% say we're celebrating regardless. And here's something really interesting. And I want to put this to you because I want to put this in front of you. We have a dashboard that we follow, which means that when we post the question of the week on a Monday, and, and by the way, this week, we're giving the team at Y Station, we said, you guys take a week off because we've got, we've got our, our, our question of the week as well coming up on that referendum. You remember the equalization referendum that you participated in? Last week was a big news week. Uh, it sounds almost gauche to refer to it as that, but there were a lot of things happening in the news last week. And, and so we took the time to cover stories in more fulsome fashion And we said that this equalization conversation, this referendum that's scheduled for the fall, we can hang tight on that data. So we'll be presenting that to you a week from today. So the team at Y Station's taking a week off the question of the week. But through the week, when we post it on Monday, we'll we'll keep an eye, their team and ours, on the dashboard. And we'll see the initial flood of responses on the Monday and the Tuesday. And, And then sometimes it'll change on the Wednesday. Sometimes a news event or a development will occur and it will impact some of the statistics. In other words, we may say, hey, 60% of real talkers felt a certain way about this on Monday, whatever the subject is. But when the prime minister made an announcement or when this person was arrested or when this happened or whatever, all of a sudden that number swung a great degree. Public opinion changes, right? Now, during the time that this question of the week was posted, 751 unmarked graves were discovered at and near a former residential school, Cowessus First Nation in Saskatchewan. Check this out. There was no significant difference in responses to our survey on Canada Day after the discovery of 751 children's graves in Saskatchewan. It happened midweek. It happened mid-question of the week, you might say. And there was no discernible swing in opinion, inclination or otherwise, from our respondents before and then after the discovery of those graves. The discovery, if I may say, the discovery of the 215 near Kamloops shocked the nation. Now, this entire thing is shocking, disturbing, heartbreaking, infuriating, maddening, an impetus to action, all of the things. And I don't mean to brush by this or stay in the shallow end of commentary, but what's particularly interesting is that the 215 seemed to shock people in a way that the 751 did not, at least statistically speaking, in the context of our question of the week. I'm really curious to know how you're going to feel about this. Now, of course, there's amazing commentary that comes along with this. We give you an opportunity to, to share your thoughts with us. And, and, and many of you take the time to say, well, this, this is so much more than a than a yes or no. Or this is it, it's it's not as simple as that. We recognize that July 1st, at least in our home province of Alberta, also marks The end of COVID. The pandemic's done. There's no more COVID as of Thursday. But seriously, mask mandates are lifting. Restrictions are lifting. July 1st, a lot of people will be celebrating a return to what kind of maybe sort of feels like a bit of normal. 
And I know that some of you were stressed out about that. I know that some of you were really excited about that, but it factored into your comments on this too. One of you said, I'm going to be celebrating on July 1st being fully vaccinated with all of my friends. It won't be a woohoo, our country's so great and amazing celebration, but it will be a long weekend. Another says, I'll be observing with reflection on the recent events impacting indigenous people. Another says, I, I, I don't really know. I'm kind of torn on this. I grew up in a very patriotic military family and I married into an indigenous family and I'm still sorting out my feelings. I think that's a, an amazing response. Someone said, I do not celebrate it and I haven't since Canada 150. It just doesn't feel right. Another says, I will still appreciate Canada in my usual low-key way, but it definitely feels more somber this time around. Another said, my family will reflect on what it means to be Canadian, the good, the bad, and the ugly. One said, our family will plan on wearing orange for Canada Day, but other than that, nothing special. Another said, to celebrate the greatest country in the world, I will raise my Canadian flag, I'll drink some Canadian beer, but I'll be doing it from home. Another says, I want to celebrate that I chose Canada as my home. Sounds to me like somebody who immigrated here. I want to celebrate that Canada with all of its warts and foibles. It's still a great country to live in. I want to celebrate my children were born here and are Canadian. I want to celebrate that I became a citizen of Canada. This listener says, I celebrate Canada almost every day because I chose to live here. Some of you said I once said I have mixed feelings about patriotism and celebrating Canada Day. I prefer heritage days, celebrating a multitude of cultures that blend together here in Canada. Another says as an immigrant, Canada has been very good to me and it must be celebrated. But we also must pause and reflect on how past leaders have mistreated indigenous people. We must investigate how this can be corrected. And one of you said I stopped celebrating years ago once I decolonized myself. And I think most decent people would. How are you wrapping your mind around these? I just I just wanted to flag that tomorrow we're actually getting uh, a perspective from uh, a journalist who wrote a piece in Chatelaine uh, entitled "As a Muslim, I Face Islamophobia as an Immigrant." I failed indigenous people. Her name is Fatima Saeed, and uh, we'll be hearing from her tomorrow morning at 840. So she faces Islamophobia, but she has failed indigenous people. Yeah. What an interesting perspective. Yeah. That's like a it's like an it's a it's a humility that comes with you almost sort of feel like when when you want to have meaningful conversations with people, you you approach with some humility saying, "I, I come to this conversation with an open mind, with an open heart, I come to this conversation acknowledging biases or flaws or preconceived notions with a willingness to have my mind changed. Yeah. And I mean, you asked me, how do I feel? I think it's a both and mm. uh, that it's, you know, I, I, I love my neighborhood. I love my dad has always said, you know, Edmonton is the best city in the country, in the world. And Canada is the best country in the world. So, um, it's uh, but at the same time, I see where we failed and I see that, you know, Canada was built on <laughs> built on genocide in my in my opinion. And we talked I actually was on my, the back porch on uh, my folks place yesterday and they usually put a Canadian flag out every Canada Day. And my dad said, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. I mean, one these these are these are audience members of the same show. Right. These are all these comments we're reading. These are people that are all 
real talkers. One says, I will never celebrate the theft of my lands and resources. Another says, I will be mindful of not posting my family celebrating. And one of you said, I hope to enjoy it more this year and laugh at all the cancel culture idiots. So that's another person's perspective. You can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk RJ is the hashtag that we follow on Twitter. That hashtag is powered by the team at Park Power, and, and we're grateful for their partnership. You know, they're in the internet, electricity, and natural gas game. Coming up on a decade, Park Power is of, of being in business, and they began on the right foot. They've been supporters, big supporters of the communities where they live and work. 10% of their profits are shared with nonprofits. And of course, you know, with the promo code 2021-REALTALK, at parkpower.ca, you're going to save $70 off your first bill, commercial or residential, at parkpower.ca. Also, big shout out to the team at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Amazing to see so many people I know taking these opportunities to get out into the great outdoors, whether it's that 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 secret fishing spot you've got, whether it's an amazing lake or, or maybe somewhere where you just find those big trees and enjoy the shade. Canadians have been trusting the Jeep brand since 1941. No dealerships in Alberta have a better selection than St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. They can share their inventories. And of course, they pride themselves on great return customer service. It's what they've built the business on at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. You can find them online under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Thursday uh, will mark July 1st. It means the end of June. It means the end of Pride Month. But of course, that doesn't stop conversations around issues impacting LGBTQ2S plus Canadians and people around the world. We've been proud to be hosting some pretty meaningful, interesting, stimulating conversations over the past four weeks. And I'm thrilled this morning to welcome to the program uh, hockey writer, Paul Quinney from the hockeywriters.com and former professional hockey player Brock McGillis, uh, a former Ontario Hockey League star, pro hockey player in both the U.S. and Europe, and the first male professional hockey player to come out openly as gay. Paul, Brock, welcome to the show. Uh, happy Pride Month to you. Thanks for being here with us uh, today. Brock, your story is a remarkable one. Did you always feel that way? Did, did you always feel as a young man like like your story was going to be one that would get literally millions of people talking? No, <laughs> not at all. I um, I struggled for a long time with my sexuality and I didn't share it. And finally, a few things empowered me to and, and finally gave me the kick in the butt to come out publicly. And... When I did, um, I thought maybe, you know, I'd empower myself, maybe help a few people. And ultimately, uh, you know, like you said, uh, tens of thousands of people reached out the first day. Millions of people saw it. It was uh, surreal, wild, unexpected and changed my life forever. Uh, what was it like? I mean, may, may I, I mean, I feel like I'm going to be asking you some pretty personal questions uh, here. I appreciate your willingness to be here and, and to be an open book. Um, how early in your life did you know that you were gay and, and how did that impact you as a hockey player and, and, and how you carried yourself, how open you were? Yeah. So um, the first time I remember I was six or seven years old and I was watching a movie with my parents and there was a gay character. And I said, what if I'm gay? And they said, if you're gay, you're gay. You're Brock. We love you. 
And in hindsight, I should have probably come out to them uh, early on, but they were so involved in hockey. My dad coached AAA and junior hockey and scouting the OHL, he coached for 30 plus years. My uh, brother was a first round pick in the O and played professionally. And I was afraid they'd become uh, sensitive to the language and, and in the process, stand up to it and accidentally out me. But um, I adhered to the stereotypes of a hockey player. I became, you know, I partied hard. I was, I'm ashamed to admit this, a womanizer. I thought, you know, I had to be this cocky hockey bro in order to have a career in the sport. And it really impacted me uh, emotionally, psychologically, um, and also physically. I I had season-ending injuries every season because I was so depressed and drinking daily. Did you feel or did, did you have anything uh, that that really formed in your mind this this notion that were you to come out uh, as gay while you were playing hockey, that it could be detrimental, not just to your hockey career, uh, but to your personal life as well? Did you feel that way? I didn't know if it, well, personal life is interesting because I thought maybe, you know, I'd lose friends. Definitely. I thought I'd lose hockey friends for sure. Um, I thought I'd be alienated in the culture. And as a young person uh, growing up in hockey culture, you know, it, you're immersed in it. It's your entire life. Everywhere you go, friends of parents or parents of friends rather say, how's hockey? Relatives, how's hockey going? Everyone always from the age of like 10 years old. So that was my identity. Um, I, I definitely thought it would impact my career and especially, you know, I was on NHL draft list and I was supposed to have this linear trajectory and I kept getting hurt because I was depressed because I was suicidal because I was drinking daily. And, and I felt as if I, if I came out publicly or if I told people, or if I started dating men, um, I would lose any opportunity I had in the sport. Paul, you wrote about this um, back in April, a deep dive. It's a it's a phenomenal feature at the hockeywriters.com and inclusive NHL awaits its first openly gay player. Uh, what prompted you to, to write this piece, this longer form piece, Paul? Well, I was listening to a uh, sports podcast and the, uh, they were talking about uh, gay players in other sports. And what uh, was conspicuous by its absence, of course, was uh, no mention of the NHL. So I thought, well, that's curious. And then I, I Googled it and I couldn't come up with uh, any openly gay player today, nor any player who had come out uh, in the past at any point after retirement. And, uh, I thought that's, that's curious. That's, that's an oddity, you know, uh, 103 years of the league's existence. And we have not had to this point, an openly gay player, either active, actively playing or in retirement. So I looked into it. You ask as, as part of your piece, you ask is hockey culture to blame, um, I, I don't know if, if if hockey culture is too broad of a concept, but I, but I'd love to get both of your take on this. Uh, Paul, what did you find in looking into this? Um, I kind of laid it out on a continuum. So at the one end, there's uh, the view that uh, hockey's a horrible mixture of you know toxic male uh, homophobic culture, and in that environment, there's no way a gay player could come out. And then there's kind of a middle view um, that would suggest uh, it's not that uh, 
open. Uh, you know, blatant homophobia is just no longer acceptable in today's league, but it's still there. And as Brock was saying, there is the fear among hockey players because their careers are so short that uh, they're going to pay a price if they come out, either lost friends, uh, alienation, or even being cut from the team. And then for a lot of them, that's the end of their life. Then there's at the other end of the continuum, and that's where I am, uh, is the view that, um, well, uh, certainly there are pockets of homophobia, not the blatant variety, because it's it's no longer acceptable. But nevertheless, uh, the part of hockey culture that would make it really hard for a gay person, a gay player to come out is the culture of conformity. And there's so much emphasis on the team and winning that people, uh, players are just reluctant to do anything uh, to shift the spotlight from the team to themselves. So for a gay player, uh, you know, they... Uh, understandably don't want to become a poster boy for uh, gay rights, et cetera. And so they'll, they'll stay in the background. And um, that, that I thought was that culture of conformity was at least as uh, uh, important as homophobia in keeping gay players uh, in the closet. Brock, do you agree? Is, is, is it, is it maybe more about, conformity than homophobia or is it or is it a mixture of two based on your personal experience and what you've seen i think it's a combination of um all those things and and here's how i've kind of broken down the culture to this point is most sports if you think about in canada growing up are played in schools um and in schools you have you know you might have at a youth level boys teams and girls teams you or as you get a little older men's and women's uh sharing fields sharing courts etc the volleyball team the basketball team the soccer team the football team may all share a locker room you have people from different socioeconomic backgrounds you have academics on the staff um you have you know kids who are pursuing academia in the school on clubs you have gay straight alliances uh, there's a ton of diversity there, even in terms, more diversity in terms of race. Um, so, so you're getting uh, a diverse group of people. Whereas in hockey, from a very young age, you're, you're broken up by age in a locker room, isolated away from everyone else. And your influencer is somebody who comes from this culture as a coach and typically perpetuates the culture that was reinforced on them, which leads to conformity. And then the people you look up to are hockey players a little bit older than you. So it leads to everyone. And, and because 90 something percent are white and everyone's presumed on the men's side to be straight or the boy's side, you get this thing where, and, and the majority are middle to upper class. Um, it's an expensive sport. So you get this thing where you can say anything uh, and, and, you know, there's no ramification or recourse necessarily from a very young age. Um, everyone dresses the same, talks the same, walks the same to, you know, the point of conformity. Um, and that starts very young. And then you grow up with that and you spend six to seven nights a week with the same people. So then by the time you hit junior, you move away from home, which is one of the only sports that does that at 16 years old as well. Now you're spending seven days a week in this new community where you don't know anyone except for your teammates and you, you conform even more. And then your off season, you go home and train 
with the people you grew up with who were the other hockey players and you're reinforcing this all the way up to the NHL. Plus now hockey kids, I equate junior hockey players to Instagram influencers or YouTubers where they have a ton of social influence, but they are, um, they are accessible. They're accessible to youth. They're accessible to adults and, and to their peers, which leads to where it's like Connor McDavid is Brad Pitt, right? Like he's not accessible to the public. So it leads to more insularity. It leads to uh, conformity within society and Canadian culture. And, and it perpetuates the same stuff over and over. And that one of the things that perpetuates is homophobic language in locker rooms. And that isn't changing. That hasn't changed. I, I go into locker rooms yearly and whether it's uh, AAA youth hockey to major junior, every kid admits to using homophobic language. Hmm. So uh, the, the language plays a massive role in that because for me, from the age of 10 all the way until I was 23 and even later, it's just beat into your head every day how bad it is, how horrible it is because you're hearing this language constantly. Yeah, I, man, I just... I... I, I, you know, I feel like personally language can change quickly, I, I think, but it takes leadership. It, it takes leadership in people talk about locker room talk and, and being allies. And, and I look at some positive indicators and I'm curious to know, uh, I'll come to you, Paul, first, but I'm, I, I want to ask both of you about this. I see some positive indicators. Like, I think there's nobody. I mean, when you talk about hockey culture and, and you, you know, I mean, like I think of Brian Burke, you know, Berkey, everybody, you know, he talks about like truculence. And, and of course, his son, Brendan, who he loved so dearly, passed away tragically in, in a car accident. But, but Brian has essentially become, uh, you know, one of I think one of the more prominent uh, allies not as though I'm the one to bestow the title, but certainly has done amazing work um, in his son's honor on this file. I, I take a look at, you know, we're coming to you from Edmonton. Andrew Ference, former captain of the Oilers, has, has been so proud to be affiliated with Pride Tape, which started in Edmonton. I see NHLers. I mean, you know, Paul, you even write about Bain Pettinger. Um, who worked for Hockey Canada, the men's national team. He came out. He said that he heard from literally the two best players in the world right now. Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby both said nothing changes. We love you. We're, we're glad you're happy. You have, you have players like Braden Holtby of the Canucks goaltender, Stanley Cup champion, Brad Marchand, you know, participating in Pride among with Artemi Panarin and many other pros. I mean, there are positive things happening. Um, is it an, I mean, I mean, is it what, what's the question? I guess I'm trying to ask. I won't say is it enough, but I mean, are these positive indicators? Do you see these as a as a sport or a culture in transition? I do. Um, you know, Bain Penninger, he he said, "Look, there's still work to be done." But uh, you know, his story, in his words, he said it wasn't a story of me against the big bad NHL. Uh, it wasn't that at all. In fact, the big bad NHL for him had been uh, accepting it. It had made real efforts to accommodate him. And I think we're seeing that uh, across the league. It is making progress, uh, albeit there's more work to be done for sure. But, you know, when you look at what the league's done, um, they have been a big supporter of uh, you can play. You know, you talked about the, the Burke program. Uh, of the four major leagues that support that program, they've probably been uh, the most active, the most supportive. And then uh, they've sponsored uh, Hockey is for Everybody. Uh, and as you point out, some of the big names in the game have really come out uh, with 
Pettinger's story, um, you know, as you know, Brock was explaining, you know, a player that comes out really, there's fear there. It takes a lot of courage and a different kind of courage than what it takes to play hockey. And uh, he was afraid of losing everything. Hockey had been his life. Uh, but to his astonishment, uh, you know, his, his cell phone exploded on the announcement that he, he had come out. And uh, as you point out, yes, uh, McDavid came out. He is supportive, Sid Crosby and uh, a range of other people. So uh, I think there's been progress to be fair to the league. I, I, I think they've, um, they made an honest effort to try and uh, improve things. So Brock, that's my take. Do, do you do you have optimism, Brock? I mean, I mean, you have firsthand lived experience here, coming out as a hockey player. Yeah, I I don't share the optimism. Mm. Um, quite honestly, I um, I I think those gestures are lovely but performative. Um, there, you know, uh, there's teams in uh, throughout the league like. These hockey for everyone nights. Well, let me ask you, what is you can play doing to shift hockey culture within locker rooms? I haven't seen anything. Um, and, and I have the utmost respect for the Burke family, but I, and, and think the world of Brian speaking out and, and the work he's done, but, but the program itself, I haven't seen anything that's actively shifting locker room culture, which is hockey culture. Brock, what you would know? be something that, that you would say, OK, this rep, this would represent to me uh, meaningful action. Right. So I, I just want to get to the other stuff Pardon first. Me. Like, the, the, yeah, that's OK. Um, so if you look at uh, hockey's for everyone, you have one night where you celebrate things, which is essentially a celebration when you haven't fixed your culture. Um, so I look at it as, uh, and I've said this a number of times now is having the parade before winning the cup. You haven't done the work to actively fix the culture inside locker rooms, hockey culture itself, corporate culture. Sure. They've, they've done a lot in, in the offices of the NHL and they walk in parades and that's corporate culture. That, that, those are the, the, there's a distinction between the two that I think needs to be noted. And it doesn't mean that the players are bad or that they wouldn't be inclusive and supportive. We know they would. But the culture hasn't shifted so that they will be, so that they um, are, are willing to actively speak out and engage or so that a player will come out because nobody has. And it's because the language hasn't shifted in the locker rooms either. Um, so I, I think these gestures are performative. I know uh, different teams, uh, people experience homophobia going to, uh, going to Pride Nights. And the teams do nothing about it. Ten teams in the NHL are partnered with Chick-fil-A, who is, is sponsoring all the anti-trans bills in the United States right now in sport, and also is trying to stop the Equality Act in America. You, you can't be inclusive and do these things. Um, in terms of shifting the culture, I've, I've offered to the NHL and I've told them and, and um, you need to humanize these issues because the insularity, this has never been humanized for these players. They aren't exposed to things. We saw last year during uh, the Black Lives Matter movement when it, when it was in, you know, so visible in our faces after the murder of George Floyd, over 200 hockey players in the NHL made statements. Yeah, That was a humanizing moment for hockey players because they're not exposed to this regularly. Uh, it was a failure on the part of the league and the PA to not have education available to them in that moment. 
We need to humanize issues and then educate players on them so they feel more comfortable and well-versed to speak out. There's like, I, I know of at least 20 players in the NHL who have uh, queer siblings. I've never spoke about it. Don't speak out for LGBTQ plus rights and, and don't shift culture to make it safe because the conformity within it. So I, I think we're incredibly far away. And, and, and it's not to say that other sports are that much better. I mean, there's hundred football players on each NFL team and one player's out in the league. Like, <laughs> you know, they're like, well, let's get to that. I want I wanted to play this. This is, this is, uh, I sometimes I'll throw the brakes on mid sentence. So Paul, it might be like when you're writing a column and you get halfway through a sentence, you go, ah, backspace, backspace, backspace. I was going to say, this is remarkable. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but I mean, Carl Nassib says he doesn't want it to be remarkable. He's a defensive end with the Las Vegas Raiders. A week ago, he posted this vote video uh, on his Instagram, becoming the first openly gay NFL player to come out while still active in the league. Here's Carl Nassib. What's up, people? I'm Carl Nassib. I'm at my house here in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Just want to take a quick moment to say that I'm gay. I've been meaning to do this for a while now, but I finally feel comfortable enough to get it off my chest. Um, I really have the best life. I got the best family, friends, and job a guy could ask for. Um, I'm a pretty private person, so I hope you guys know that I'm really not doing this for attention. Um, I just think that representation and visibility are so important. Um, I actually hope that like one day videos like this and the whole coming out process are just not necessary. Um, but until then, you know, I'm going to do my best and do my part to cultivate a culture that's accepting, that's compassionate. And I'm going to start by donating $100,000 to the Trevor Project. They're an incredible organization. They're the number one suicide prevention service for LGBTQ youth in America. And they're truly doing incredible things. And I'm very excited to be a part of it, to help in any way that I can. And I'm really pumped to see what the future holds. Uh, that's all I have for you guys. I hope you have a great day. There you go. Uh, Carl Nassib, um, it's worth mentioning that his jersey uh, with Las Vegas Radars in the days following his announcement was the top-selling jersey in the National Football League. Brock, how significant is that? I think it's a testament to what people refer to as the pink dollar, right? Like the queer dollars. Um, I, I think the significance for Carl, um, like when I watch that, I don't, I don't think about, um, wow, watershed moment. I feel excited and happy for Carl. He gets to take that, that hundred pound weight off his shoulders that burden of having to hide. Like I dated somebody for three years of my life while I was playing hockey that nobody met. Nobody in my life met. We had an alias so that nobody in his life could find me on social media. Hmm. Carl's done that type of stuff. Had to have, you know what I mean? And, and so for me to, to see this burden off of his shoulders, to be able to live free, is what I go to first. And I'm so happy for Carl. Um, I think it's a testament to uh, the pink dollar that if you make an inclusive safe space or if a player comes out, there the, people will spend money in your sport. I think hockey, for instance, could attract so many more people if they felt safe in the space. And that goes from youth up. I mean, there's a recent study done in, in Australia that, that said that uh, it, it compared six different countries and, and 
uh, what on the use of homophobic language in locker rooms and youth sports, boys, men's youth sports. And Canada was the worst. And what sport do we play the most? So to me, that says, you know, if, if you shift your culture and create safe environments, you'll have people from a very young age playing your sport. And that'll empower them. And they'll probably be lifelong fans of your sport and spend their dollars in your sport. So I think that's an important thing that we're seeing from the jersey sales. And it's, yeah, and it's interesting to hear you. I mean, first of all, I so appreciate your comments. I love that you made that about Carl. You say you're happy for Carl. Um, you, you, but you make a very interesting point about the economics of sport, which ultimately, I mean, that's the mandate, uh, the, the ultimate consideration for the commissioner of any sport or, 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 or of course, the, the board of governors, the owners, uh, those types of things. Paul, can we draw a direct parallel? I mean, you know, the National Football League, the National Hockey League, certain cultures, the, the machismo, maybe preconceived notions. Is, is this similar to a, to a high-profile National Hockey Leaguer? coming out and and I, I i said this earlier i love how carl did it. he's like hey everybody just wanted to quickly mention i'm gay there wasn't like a big lead up to it he just was like here's the deal here's what i want to say is it comparable in your mind as, as a journalist well yeah i mean look it's gotta i i know the the nhl falls short of perfection uh they'll even admit that but it's got to start somewhere and so players coming out in this case carl nasib in the nfl um, I don't know what his motivations are, but the point is, hey, he came out. There's, it's got to start somewhere. And if it starts at the top, as I think it is, it's, it'll trickle down eventually. It'll take time. Social change takes a long time. Uh, as for the NHL, you know, let's, let, I agree. Let's suppose uh, they weren't motivated by ethics or principle. Uh, certainly business considerations will force them to uh, change the culture and open up uh, to all kinds of minorities, not just uh, uh, gay uh, or the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, they'll do it for business reasons. And they recognize, uh, you know, long term where their fans are. Uh, I talk to my kids, they're early 30s, and they have no time for uh, any bigotry, uh, including uh, homophobia in any of the sports and entertainment uh, products that they consume. So the NHL knows that. And I think that will, you know, leaving aside whether or not they're ethical, that that will drive the change. Uh, so and I think they have that in common with other sports leagues and in fact, other corporations. Right. Uh, uh, you know, Nike came out with that commercial with uh, Kaepernick taking a D. A and W, uh, they pound away at uh, sustainable, uh, environmentally sustainable meat products, uh, and and the list goes on. So, yeah, I think economics will will drive this certainly uh, if if principle and ethics doesn't. Brock, how similar is our conversation about this five years from now, or ten years from now, or how different is it? Well, I'm doing a project right now where I'm uh, celebrating for, for Pride this year, the NHL decided to focus their, their first tweet was on, we're going to celebrate allies. And to me, that felt very, and a lot of people were very disappointed and upset because, I mean, uh, it felt very straight people celebrating straight people for queer stuff. Um, so I decided to 
um, celebrate queer people. And in the past two weeks, I've interviewed, I've done Zoom interviews that we're releasing soon with, uh, by, the, by Thursday of this week, we'll have done 120 interviews with LGBTQ plus fans, participants, or people who work in hockey. And the sentiment seems to be the same for many that um, the performative actions aren't good enough. They were good 10, 15 years ago. And, and it's not enough today. And it's not leading to change. I mean, even last year during the bubble, instead of saying Black Lives Matter, we were saying we skate for. And putting everyone together, we skate for frontline workers, we skate for black lives, we skate for, you know what I mean? And it was like, we couldn't just say those things out of fear of alienating a certain fan base. Hmm. And so unless they decide to really get uncomfortable and stand up to these things and, and do active things to shift it within these communities, I think we're going to be at the same spot. I'm grateful for your candor uh, this morning. If, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, Brock, I'm taking a look right now at brockmcgillis.com. Is that where you want to send people these, these interviews that you're doing? Is, is this the best place for people to connect with your work? Uh, there and also it'll be on Twitter and Instagram. So my Twitter is Brock underscore McGillis and my Instagram is Brock McGillis 33. Good stuff. Uh, so grateful for your time and, and your perspective. If you want to read Paul Quinney's piece, if you've not yet read it again, an inclusive NHL awaits its first openly gay player. Uh, it, it, it's it's one of those pieces, although he wrote it and published it April 1st at the hockey It's it's a great read. It's, it, it's not time stamped and, and it's still very much relevant. Uh, Paul Quinney, a hockey reporter and, of course, former player Brock McGillis. Thanks to the both of you this morning. Really appreciate your insight and your time. Thank you. You can send us an email anytime you like. You simply visit our website, ryanjesperson.com. It's easy to find right at the top of the page. You can just click on talk to us and that's where you can send us an email you find the uh, the links there of course you can hit us up on the social media or get us at talk at ryanjesperson.com that culture of conformity uh and, and by the way i see that sarah hoyles has also posted the link to paul's article in the live chat on our shows if you're watching this on youtube either now as we speak or uh, later on in the day you'll be able to find it there uh joan wonders why are nhl players only using pride tape during warm-ups right why don't they use it during games uh, which is an interesting one. The Watcher. <laughs> Am I allowed to say this? Am I allowed to read this? I can read this. I can read this. BrockMcGillis.com. The, the homepage here. This, uh, the Watcher just says, damn, that's a hot photo. <laughs> Not wrong. It's a great photo. But we appreciate your perspectives on this. I'd like to hear what, I mean, what are parents doing? What are coaches doing? I guarantee among our listening and viewing audience, we have a ton of people that are volunteering as coaches or assistant coaches like me or parents. What are you doing with regards to combating language? Hoyles, do you feel like when, when I, Brock McGillis says, listen, homophobic language is still an issue in the sport. Um, I can think of some pretty prominent players that have found themselves in, in hot water recently, like in the last couple of seasons for things that have been picked up by mics on ice things that they'll say to each other in this in the mix right in the corner so to speak when they when they got the elbows up and they're grinding each other or barking in the penalty boxes or whatever it is trying to get in you know there's that whole idea of getting in the other player's head and, and chirping them but 
as we've seen in sports, sometimes that leads to misogyny, homophobia, racism. We've seen these examples. We've seen leagues take action, whether it's sufficient action or not, not for me to say. Oftentimes critical players have come forward and said, I regret the word I used. It's not a word that I use. I don't believe, you know, and they've gone on the record kind of saying I didn't mean it the way that it sounded. <laughs> I'm of the inclination. Well, no, I, let me say this. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not defending any slur, but I do think that sometimes people find themselves in a situation where a word comes out of their mouth and they immediately go, oh, boy, because it's a supercharged word. But there's that kind of cultural thing around it. There, there's there's the reason why that word comes up part of this culture. Do you believe that that culture can quickly change? I feel like language can quickly change. Hmm. Am, am, am I am I two rose colored glasses about this? Well, I, I just think that, you know, when someone's like, oh, man, I, I can't believe I said that. It's like you're to me. It, I'm like, you're just sorry that you got caught. Well, you're sure. just You're just sorry that you got that sure. got picked up by a mic and that like, would you would you have changed had you not been heard? Would you have apologized if you had not been overheard? But do you believe that it can change? Do you believe that a player like Ryan Getzlaff, who's a respected National Hockey League player, uh, who a couple of years ago had had to publicly issue a statement because he got busted because mm-hmm. a Mike picked up a comment that he made on the ice. He's the, the captain of the Anaheim Ducks. He's a he's going to go into the Hall of Fame. He's a respected National Hockey Leaguer. Could Ryan Getzlaff impact the culture in that locker room? And, and with his fellow players to a point where they say, yeah, you know what? It's totally irresponsible or it's totally insensitive or it's hateful or perpetuate stereotypes. And could it change like that? And all of a sudden, could young players that are wearing 15 because Getz wore 15, then they go, hey, he says it's wrong. I respect him. I like can. You know, Charles Barkley always said, like, don't make me. I'm not your role model. I'm not your kid's role model. I'm a pro pro basketball. I'm not a role model. Like it or not. He is. Yeah. Um, No, I don't think that it's going to change like that. I do Mm. not think that. Um, I think because if that one player got picked up on a mic, did the apology because he got busted. It really depends on what is he doing behind the scenes. Yeah. And. Is it just that, you know, he's like, oh, I had to apologize. And I like, I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. Maybe maybe he has changed. But I think it's about consequence. I think it's about making sure that there is, as Brock talked about, like that there is no there isn't a tolerance and acceptability of using those terms. Um, so there has to be consequence. At, and and then it becomes you know, for all those people that won't come out because they're scared, it's more that people are scared to say those things. Mm. So they don't say them. We could also broaden this conversation to talk about education oh, versus oh, enforcement, right? Whether, yeah. whether whether we're talking about masks and things to do with the pandemic or, or whether we're talking about, you know, I mean, like, you know, slurs in sport. I think it's um, both. And you know, again, you say like there, there has to be consequence, um, which I agree. But like, you know, what what's what's consequence in that case? I would say that the the public drag, I, I would say that the implications uh, when it comes to the consequences of, of, of someone's reputation are much. A guy that's made $75 million over the course of his career, uh, maybe the optics of being fined $50,000 are powerful. Um, I don't know that the player misses the money or cares no, about totally. the money. Yeah. I don't think that that's a big deal. I think the consequences are the reputational hit. 
But I do think also that it, that an organized body of sport, whether it's the double IHF or the National Hockey League or whether it's women's pro soccer or baseball or lawn bowling uh, needs to take a stand. And there does need to be a meaningful response from the league. Yeah. And so I think there I'm with you 100 percent. Um, I don't know if a hockey player is going to change their mind on language based on having to pay a monetary fine. No, absolutely not. I think it, it's it's it needs to be bigger than just th- that one that one player and that that one instance. So and to be clear, I'm not it's not about one or the other. I feel that it needs to be education so people can understand why is this problematic and how am I, you know, silencing, hurting uh, my my teammates who I spend I mean th- those hours that Brock was talking about holy smokes yeah. the hours that they spend together um, so understanding what the impacts are but then also having that backstopped no pun intended for sports references but yeah. backstopped by consequence this conversation we've just had is part of our uh, ongoing commitment um, to offering meaningful conversations through the course of Pride Month and our partners at Power Ed right now celebrating Pride Month are offering a 10% discount on Power Ed courses around allyship and inclusion. This is really neat. Check this out at, at powered.ca. A 10% discount at powered.ca using the promo code REALTALK10. If your workplace is actively practicing allyship or your organizations may be looking for a place to start in an endeavor to build inclusive communities, PowerEd is helping organizations take these first important steps. Their new microcourse, Embracing Allyship and Inclusion, helps organizations recognize discriminatory practices, develop inclusive behaviors, and lay the groundwork for meaningful allyship in the workplace and beyond. Again, the promo code for this allyship and inclusion embracing allyship and inclusion the promo code realtalk10 at powered.ca you'll see 10% off our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton in Sherwood Park know that uh, hey let's be honest they probably don't have to advertise this time of year everybody wants to get to Dairy Queen when the temperatures look like they do right now but if you're looking for more than ice cream keep in mind that you can get two cheeseburgers at Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton in Sherwood Park right now there's six locations for five bucks two doubles for seven bucks we're so grateful for the partnership of the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. Go visit them today, and you make sure you drop our name to get these monthly deals. You tell them Jespo sent you. You tell them that Real Talk sent you. The Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. There's been amazing work going on at the Yellowhead Institute. Uh, this is... Uh, Part of, I mean, when we say to you, when we make a commitment to you and we say we're going to show up every single morning to have conversations that matter, to have meaningful conversations, we mean that we're going to dig into stories and we're going to examine ourselves. We want to look inward. We want to look in the mirror, if you will. And a big part of those conversations these days across Canada prompted, of course, by obvious developments heartbreaking maddening developments the discovery of hundreds of unmarked children's graves outside former residential schools a big conversation in canada right now is beginning around the nation's response and individuals response to the truth and reconciliation commission of canada's calls to action 
five years ago, Canadians saw that list. What has the country done since then? Different levels of government. What does meaningful response look like? What has remained on the list out of practice? It's the work that Dr. Eva Jewell is doing as part of the team at Yellowhead Institute. And I'm grateful that Dr. Jewell's agreed to join us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk and thanks for being here this morning. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I feel I feel like I've only half introduced the Yellowhead Institute because I'm curious to know how you're going to put it. Um, interestingly, the Yellowhead Institute operates out of Ryerson University, which my understanding is some students, faculty and staff are starting to refer to as X University. Why don't we start our conversation right there? Where do you land on that? Sure. So I'm in support of changing the name. I currently use the term X University uh, to describe the place that I work at. Um, it is named for someone who has a critical um, contributor to the rise of residential schools as we saw how they rolled out. Um, and as my um, uh, ancestors experienced them. So Ryerson was, uh, Egerton Ryerson was an individual who was a Methodist minister. He, uh, him and his family, uh, his brother was on the first board of trustees of the residential school that I grew up on. Um, and all of my ancestors had passed through that school and that's Mount Elgin Indian Industrial School, which opened in the 1840s. Uh, so much sooner than the 1890s where Canadians think that uh, residential schools had opened up. And uh, so his contributions to the schools were to um, ensure that students were educated in faith-based education um, and that they were um, made to take up manual labor and domestic labor. So it wasn't so much for an enrichment or a, you know, um, an aspirational education that was meant to educate uh, children so that they could meet their full potential. They were schools where children were um, uh, basically um, made to, well, they were labor camps, essentially, and, and they were, of course, horrifically abused. So that's Egerton Ryerson's legacy. And that is the reason why we, as Indigenous faculty at the school, as students, staff, um, and all of those of us who are uh, our allies, um, protest the name. Doctor, had, had those conversations been occurring uh, among the, the staff and faculty and, and even students at, at X University, where you're, where you're joining us from, where I should mention you're a professor of, of sociology, um, I should also establish, by the way, that you recently, just a couple of years ago, received the Governor General's Gold Medal for an outstanding dissertation from Royal Roads University. I mean, your background here is multifaceted, which makes your perspective, I think, that much more valuable. Were these conversations happening on campus at Ryerson? Were, do you think that people were... I mean, especially as, as we've marked about five and a half years now since the release of that Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report. Has this conversation been ongoing? Has it simply been made more prominent or more timely based on these recent developments or these discoveries? Yeah, so folks have been talking about the problem of the name for a long time, Indigenous people specifically. Um, and I think... Um, it's been a topic of discussion since at least the 90s that I can see, and I'm sure it's been happening uh, since before that. And uh, just last year, Black Lives Matter uh, group had done a lot of important work in establishing the, the, the current and contemporary protest against the name. Um, of course, 
you know, awesome co-conspirators in, in the work and uh, in mobilizing awareness about Indigenous issues, but also because uh, Egerton Ryerson was about segregation of Black Canadians and about the um, education of chill, young young girls uh, to be educated in the ways of domestic servitude to men in a patriarchal society. So there's many groups that have grievances against uh, this particular person and his system really only benefited, um, you know, young white boys and, and, and white men, right? So um, there's been a lot of discussion about it and I wanna honor all of those folks that have done important work in, in protesting the name. Let's talk about a report that you uh, co-authored this uh, calls to action accountability, uh, a 2020 status update on reconciliation. December 15th of 2020 was a, a f- the five year mark since the release of that final report. These 94 calls to action that were put in front of Canadians. So how's the country doing? Well, in 2020, there were no calls to action that were completed. No, uh, none, of course, zero. Was, yeah. Um, we had to really uh, frame that in terms of the pandemic and being attentive, of course, to the challenges of the pandemic. But we had argued that it was actually uh, created a greater sense of urgency to complete the calls to action because of the situation that Indigenous folks, uh, Indigenous communities and nations are currently in. And um, before that, uh, we were at about a rate of 2 to 2.25 a year, I guess you could say. So at the point uh, last year when we had released the report, we had seen about eight calls to action completed total in the total of five years. Um, and so that's uh, that's obviously changed in the, fa- in the past few weeks, and that's going to impact the report that we authored this year. And uh, some interesting develops, developments have happened in the last, I would say, four weeks. What do you think has been the the barrier? I mean, you, you, you have a federal government that's talked the talk. Um, you have some provincial governments. I know even municipal governments that have that have maybe taken some symbolic steps or otherwise to to impact change. And then you may have organizations or individuals that are that are doing their part or maybe now at least are considering how they can do their part. But what do you perceive to be the biggest barriers to action, at least in the first five years? There's a few that we outlined. There's, of course, um, paternalism on the part of the federal government uh, in choosing and picking which ones they think is best to complete first, uh, despite the fact that we're still struggling in communities under um, the calls to action that could be addressed uh, immediately in terms of some of the calls to action being like the, removing the um, the education gap or the education discrepancy between on and off reserve education uh, currently, the Canadian government funds these schools at about half the rate than off-reserve schools. So things like that. Um, uh, so that's paternalism. Uh, we also pointed to the lack of political will. And so actually, it was really interesting uh, why and how that lack of political will is conceptualized uh, to Indig- Indigenous Services Canada. So in an internal communication memo that was dated in April 2019, April 2019, they had stated that Canadians are just not really concerned with Indigenous issues. And so uh, this was challenging, this was posed a challenge to Indigenous Services Canada to get any work done because Canadians were so apathetic to the issues. Mm. Uh, And so that's interesting because in the last four years, Canadians 
have been very interested in what's been happening uh, and have been quite interested in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. And so four calls to action have been completed or significant movement has been made on four calls to action in the last four weeks. And that's more movement than there has been in the last three years. When it comes to lack of political will, do you think do you think that much of that comes from cost implications? Do you think that's what it is? Is, is it that simple, uh, most especially on the part of the federal government where people are, you know, pointing out, I think, that certain acknowledgments of liability could have major consequences? I mean, is, is, are, are politics polluting this on a fiscal front, do you think? Absolutely. So, um that's another part of of the the lack of action is the it, acting on the calls to action is actually in against the public interest and this is also stated in internal memos in indigenous services canada so most Can- canadians don't actually understand how first nations are funded or how these calls to action could be funded they say and they point to budget line items and say look you know millions of dollars have been um contributed to a particular reconciliation line item. Isn't that enough? When is it going to be enough, right? So most Canadians, of course, really don't understand how First Nations are funded. There's this myth and one that the government does nothing to stop, that Indigenous peoples are sponging off the federal government and their tax dollars. And so we actually published a report in May called Cashback that looks at the um, economic disparities from a perspective of Indigenous stolen wealth. So there's this idea out there that somehow First Nations are pampered or privileged, and I'm quoting straight from the report, uh, that First Nations actually face a predatory environment of interconnected forms of violence due to systemic impoverishment. And First Nations have actually been denied even a fraction of what they have contributed to this nation's wealth. And so this is, again, of course, a very complex um, but also very straight, it's, it's, it's complex in that it has many moving parts nowadays, but there's a very straightforward um, stream and, and uh, history of what's happened here. And that is the uh, Indian Trust Fund, which was established in 1858. And that holds the revenues of land sales from, of course, quote unquote, Indians, as they're called, to the crown. And the trust was was so large at the time of confederation that it amounted to more than 10% of Canada's annual revenue. So this is, again, all from the cashback report. So, in fact, Indigenous peoples have bankrolled Canada, and there's still much stolen wealth and much discrepancies in the, in the funding uh, in this country. And uh, it's ironic that the narrative has shifted to cast us as, like, sponging off or mooching off of the taxpayers. Um, when Indigenous peoples have been bankrolling the the colony of Canada for years uh, through the spending of, of Indian trust money. So, for example, here's one example from the cashback report. In 1834, the province of Upper Canada invested Six Nations money, so this is Six Nations of the Grand River, that had been held in trust to fund the Grand River Navigation Company without the consent um uh, or knowledge of, of Six Nations of the Grand River. And so there's, of course, reports that Six Nations have put together, and that is that Canada owes uh, trillions of dollars uh, in back pay uh, from the Haldeman tract that um, that m- much of, of the lands have been um, have been dispossessed since since the uh, agreement of uh, and the settling of the Haldeman tract. Um, 
it's it's a really huge issue. And so nothing could be farther from the truth that Indigenous peoples are sponging off of taxpayer money. Do you think and, and I should mention, by the way, that, that people can can read this cashback report by visiting yellowheadinstitute.org. It's it's right there. Very easy to find uh, right there on the main page, yellowheadinstitute.org. Um, our guest right now, Dr. Eva Jewell of the Yellowhead Institute. Do, when you describe this apathy, do you sense I mean, I, I've seen a lot of people anecdotally leaving comments uh, online as part of our conversations here on the show uh, on social media saying, I feel something. They say, I feel that something's changing. I want to believe that this is meaningful. I've not seen sustained national conversations like I have in the last three or four weeks. Do you believe that the needle's moving on that apathy? I think we may have uh, lost our guest there. Sam will work to get uh, Dr. Eva Jewell back again. Um, what a moment to freeze up there, hey? At the uh, 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 the good doctor is a professor in sociology at the Yellowhead Institute at, as she calls it, X University. That's Ryerson University. Um, indigenous faculty members there, including those at the Yellowhead Institute, though I can't speak for all of them, but it sounds like uh, collectively pushing for a name change, obviously, uh, due to Egerton Ryerson's role in the residential school system uh, in Canada. Interesting to hear that. At the five-year mark, zero calls to action meaningfully adopted. Uh, doctor, we have you back. Uh, I, was, I was asking you, do you, get, do you get the sense? I mean, people talk about this national conversation, a sustained conversation saying they feel like it's different this time. Uh, in the context of your comments about apathy, do you feel like that's changing? Are you optimistic? I should hope that the graves of children will change Canadians perspective and and sense of of meaningful action i really really do hope so and i think you know and i want to acknowledge and honor the work that has happened in terms of black lives matter uh me too lgbtq plus communities um raising the the bar for human rights in in these you know, in this continent, I guess I should say in the US and in Canada and, and around the world, I think there is a different level of conversation happening and a different, uh, and I should hope, cautiously hope that there are going to be different expectations on the part of Canadians and what type of world um, they want to live in. Are you uh, reading through the, I mean, there are, there are implications, the, the calls to action include uh a call for the for the Pope to issue an official apology. And there's certainly been conversations around that. There's there's an impetus for media um, implications for the CBC, for APTN and for journalists. Um, there's a big section on curriculum and what we teach young students uh, across this country. There's there's a conversation flaring in Alberta right now over draft social studies curriculum. One of the authors of that draft curriculum, Chris Champion, tied to the Dorchester Review. It's obviously a despicable situation that I know is embarrassing uh, hundreds of thousands of Albertans uh, in a national or international context. Um, I want to leave an opportunity for you to comment on what's happening in Alberta right now. But nationwide, when it comes to curriculum and educational content what do these conversations look like i'm interested in your perspective I mean, you're a professor you're an academic you're you have an understanding of this at a level on the education front how young i mean i'm thinking we know that there are children as young as three buried in these 
mass graves. We know that these children were taken from their families in many cases by the time they were six. It seems to me that children are old enough to learn about these atrocities if they were old enough to be taken from their families. But what does this look like to you as an academic? Yeah, so I think that's a really good point. I I really do think that it's possible to teach children um, even the building blocks for what they need to understand what, you know, to prepare them for when they're going to encounter these topics and these subjects. So things like, you know, to set children up for a quality sex education, um, you need to teach ideas like consent and you can teach that very early on. Uh, so there's the same type of, of things that can happen teaching children about equity or ch- teaching children about, you know, whose land they're on. That's really easy to do that. It's really easy to share with children um, stories about like, you know, the the um, orange shirt uh, is, a, is a very powerful tool to teach children about um, what it was like for children to be taken away from their parents. So you can just talk about, you know, you love your parents, right? Like you can, you can imagine it was very difficult for people to be taken away from their, from their parents. So we don't have to talk about the fact that there's graves outside of the, the schools very, you know, very early on to three-year-olds. You're not dumping all that information to them, but you're providing them with uh, the tools to prepare them for when they do start to receive that information. Um, and I wanted to point out that some of the curriculum, even the standard curriculum now, is still pretty um, rooted in a lot of myth- mythologies. And so there's actually a really excellent piece in the star uh, a few days ago where uh, Dr. Jennifer Brandt and Dr. Eve Tuck uh, t- took a look at the curriculum and, and noted how that curriculum was actually still um, casting mythological narratives and, and Canadian benevolence over the residential schools. So when we start framing things such as the positives of these schools or um, how First Nations, you know, appreciated being educated and things like that. That, again, really um, kind of assumes that the schools were benevolent in purpose. And we know very well that they were not. And we know that there is a very clear history of resistance to the schools and also whistleblowers um, at the school. So there were Canadian officials who knew that these schools were were not um an enriching environment and in fact they were actually very violent and abusive and and unsanitary and they tried to do things about it but Canada continued to cover it up so there's you know there's a very clear history of that Eva we we uh, polled our audience we do a question of the week every week we get hundreds of respondents and and we asked our audience over the past seven days to to share with us um how their uh basically how their experience and how, how their mindset and thought process is going to impact on Thursday, how they observe or do not observe, how they celebrate or do not celebrate Canada Day, whether or not they'll cancel it or celebrate it, whatever the case may be. It's been fascinating to see the results. Our audience does not have consensus. Um, we have uh, about, about half of the audience members saying that they do not feel awkward about celebrating Canada Day. Uh, this is pretty interesting. 42% say they do plan on celebrating. 37% say that they don't. Um, what What's your thought? I mean, look at this. The 32% say they feel awkward. 48% say they don't feel awkward whatsoever. We'll call that half of the audience does not feel awkward. Where are your thoughts around? I mean, we've discussed on this show in past episodes the, the Cancel Canada Day movement. People have 
have invoked the service of, of, I mean, we had one audience member today talking about an indigenous ancestor of theirs who proudly served with the Canadian military. They say that they've often thought of them on Canada Day. Now they say it's more of a complicated process than ever before. What's your advice or what are, what's a thought that you might share with our audience as, as we approach July 1st? Uh, I have never celebrated Canada Day. I was, I grew up, uh, my dad is uh, Oneida and Mohawk, and he grew up telling us we're not Canadians, we're not Americans, we're, we're Anishinaabe and, and, you know, right? That's how I grew up. And so I think Canadians, I mean, this is your country. Like, if you, like, you're going to celebrate it this year, but you're going to celebrate it, you know, while we're grieving and mourning the loss of, of uh, children from our communities. I mean, you got to live with that. So I don't really know what to, to say about that. But I think there are some folks who want alternatives to Canada. They, they Maybe they want to reflect. And so there's lots of things you can do to reflect. You can talk about um, maybe you look like that's more equitable for Indigenous peoples and all in, uh, in all peoples more generally. So, you know, newcomers, Black and, uh, black and um, racialized folks. Muslim communities, like what does a Canadian society look like uh, that is free from the um, uh, the very difficult and uh, genocidal past and, and ongoing legacy? And as we see in the response to action on our Canadian government, it's actually your um, Canadian government is and so if you continue to go on and, and celebrate Canada Day and, you know, light off your fireworks and do your thing, um, I hope that you know that it's your apathy that continues to, uh, to ensure that Indigenous peoples are oppressed and, um, and that there continues to be inaction on the part of the Canadian government. So in the last four weeks, there's been a lot of attention paid to the issues and the Canadian government pushed through more work than they had done in the last three years. So uh, you can do something and still um, I, I, you can do something meaningfully uh, on that day. You can choose to reflect uh, more meaningfully on, on what it is that this country represents to uh, maybe to you, um, but also what it means for us. As mentioned, you can uh, read uh, the special reports that we've discussed here with Dr. Jewell, including uh, as you can see here, the cash back uh, Yellowhead Institute red paper there. And as discussed, the calls to action accountability, a 2020 status update on reconciliation. Um, Dr. Eva Jewell, a professor of sociology and an associate fellow at the Yellowhead Institute at X University in Toronto. I'm grateful for your time today. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me. You bet. Again, yellowheadinstitute.org. I'm curious to know, I feel like typically when we have our questions of the week and we've asked you to respond to this uh, and you do many of like hundreds of you literally every single week and, and you share your thoughts with us and you go on and there's just this blank area with a cursor blinking and you sit there and you type out your thoughts and you tell us how you feel. I'm wondering if this week's going to be a little bit different in the sense that you were sharing your thoughts with us before you saw the results of the survey. And I wonder if a few of you are maybe inspired to comment further based on 
the numbers that you're seeing from your fellow audience members here. And we welcome your feedback anytime. You can send us an email by way of our website. It's easy to find us on social media, uh, most especially Twitter. And we welcome your comments there. Donna says, you know, when I was a young adult, Canada Day was just like an extra day off. 40 years later, I appreciate where I live as opposed to some other countries. But but I do, says Donna, feel shame for my settler status. Says this Canada Day? No. Alyssa out of Calgary watching says, I've never really celebrated Canada Day, to be honest. Aside from witnessing new Canadians take their oath, I've never understood the point of Canada Day. Matt says, I'm not celebrating this year. I'm spending it with my kid. We're going to talk about the 94 calls to action. The Watcher, wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't sugarcoat it? That's all. The kids would get the information without the sugarcoating. I think at a young age, I think even conversations around, I was, I was telling you about this book that we're reading with Wyatt, just mm. called Stolen Words. It's a storybook. It's a, it's a beautiful book, but it's obviously horrific. It's about a Cree grandfather and, and his granddaughter, and it integrates some really neat language we're learning together in the storybook, but it talks about the power of stolen words. It doesn't get into graphic detail. I mean, he's five, but it, I can by the questions he asks and he sounds out the words and he's looking at these w- wonderful but heartbreaking illustrations. I wish I had the, bo- the book here with me, but, you know, there's there's the, the residential school teacher, you know, wearing the, 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 that collar. Right. And and uh, and there's this bird cage and it shows these young indigenous children and from their mouths, their open mouths. It's a powerful illustration are flying. These birds are coming out of their mouths and being funneled into this cage. Right. And it talks about stolen words and stolen language and the value of language. And I saw an audience member earlier today on our chat talking about how language is culture and language is everything. And when you lose language, you lose culture. When you lose culture, you lose history. When you these are the conversations that we will continue. We make a commitment. We'll continue to have here on the show. And we appreciate your feedback. So many of you drive our editorial process here. So many of you shape our understanding of the issues that are a part of our national discussion here. And we're so grateful for this audience engagement. It really is remarkable. Wanted to take a second to let you know the teams at Eden Landscaping right now. I mean, this is their prime time when it comes to the work that they're doing, actually transforming people's dreams into reality. So many of you spent your winter and spring months dreaming up what you were going to do or or what you were going to get them to do. And now's the time when it's happening. We're excited to see some of the finished products. We know that there's real talkers getting work done by Eden Landscaping right now because we're hearing it from both ends from them and from you make sure you hashtag real talk rj in the photos that you post on twitter or instagram mike and his team at eden for more than 20 years have been turning dreams into reality and solving problems for people maybe a previous landscaper or a home builder did a bit of a lousy job with your space and it's time to turn that around visit landscapeedmonton.ca today Also wanted to give a shout to the team at Local Waste. The value of keeping your dollars local extend far beyond that initial business transaction. They're proud to partner with independent local family-owned businesses because they are one and they have been one for more than a quarter century. They love to earn your business. They love to talk trash, so much so that they sponsor Trash Talk on our show every Friday. This week, Wednesday, by the way, we're off 
July 1st and 2nd. Trash Talk coming up on Wednesday. You can learn more about Local Waste, what a partnership with them looks like, and why it makes more sense to partner with them than any other waste management professionals at localwaste.ca. And a shout out to the team at Kubi Energy. Of course, in just a moment, we're going to bring you positive reflections. I talked to Jake, the founder of Kubi Energy, just the other day, and he said, Jespo, I don't think people realize right now there are some major incentives for people to finally take the plunge on their sustainable energy plans. There are $9,000 in grants up for grabs right now, which could put a huge dent in a good way, in the price of a new solar project at your home, your business, or elsewhere. At kubienergy.ca, you can learn more. Plus, they're always accepting resumes from talented professionals, including installers. If you're an electrical apprentice or a certified electrician looking for work, look to kubienergy.ca today. The first show of every week. This week, it's a Monday. The team at Kubi Energy proudly presents Positive Reflections. This is a great way to get the week started off on the right foot, to focus on the positives, so to speak. And we absolutely loved this email from Lauren. Lauren took the time to send some photos along to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Says, I went out to Wagner Natural Area tonight. I've never been there, Lauren. Says, I wanted to go see if the orchids were still blooming. Check this out. Now, she says, I'm not much of a photographer, so my apologies in advance, but I thought that this might cheer up some real talkers. These are yellow lady slipper orchids photographed on June 24th at Wagner Natural Area. Absolutely love it, Lauren. And thank you so much for sharing those with us. Of course, if you're listening to this on the podcast, a reminder that we post Positive Reflections as a separate YouTube file. You can just check out and subscribe to the Ryan Jesperson, the Real Talk Ryan Jesperson YouTube channel. This, an amazing one too. We had to share this video. This blew my mind. So Lior Patel is a drone photographer who followed a herd of sheep. Check this out. This is amazing. Let's roll it. Followed a herd of sheep for several months. Look at this. This is like a flock of starlings, but on the ground and with way more wool. I mean, this is amazing. So Lior Patel followed this herd of sheep for months as they were shepherded or it was shepherded to its summer pasture absolutely stunning. I find this to be such a relaxing video to watch. I don't know about you. I mean, to tell you the truth, I've watched this already six or seven times. Finally passed it along to Sam and said, Sam, I think that this needs to be in positive reflections. This is super cool. Here's the flock on its way through the village, on its way to its summer pasture. You can find the full minute or so video, minute and a half or so online. Just search for Lior Patel. That's L-I-O-R. If something captivates you, captures your attention, inspires you, or brings you joy, as we say in our household, if something fills your bucket, we'd love to hear about it. You can send it to us on Twitter. Even better, by email. Just label it Positive Reflections to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You could see your submission bringing joy to real talkers a week from today. Thanks for being a part of today's show. Thanks for being a part of these conversations. We're making progress, friends. Honestly, in our own neck of the woods, in our own ways, we're changing the world one day at a time. What an honor to be here with you. We'll talk to you again tomorrow morning. 
Thanks for participating in Real Talk.